We have uh, plenty to talk about today. And as you've been hearing in the news, we got some numbers released this morning. And this has to do with the number of surgeries, more than 30,000 of them, that were delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The B.C. government today announcing it could take 17 to 24 months to catch up with all of the surgeries that were put on hold. And it will be an expensive task as well. The government putting the cost in the first year alone, $250 million. And that is the cost looking at specifically the surgeries postponed because of COVID. But what about waits in the medical health system outside of the pandemic, in addition to the pandemic? Well, a new report that was released earlier today was taking a look at that. And we are joined by the co-author of that report. Bacchus Barua is the Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute and joins me now. Bacchus, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on the show to discuss this. Uh, well, very timely given, I know this report was done before we got the numbers out today on the postponements because of the pandemic, uh, but maybe walk us through some of the numbers that you looked at and that you found as far as how much it's costing Canadians to have people in waits and waiting for surgery. Absolutely. You know, I should say up front that, that, um, that the study's release was not actually intended to coincide with this announcement, which we didn't really know about, um, but it is something that we've looked at on an annual basis. Um, also, it's, it's really important to just acknowledge, again, up front that, you know, our healthcare workers are just doing an amazing job and, and they deserve all of our support. Um, however, there are going to be very significant challenges coming ahead, especially because these cancelled surgeries um, are on top of already very long wait times. Um, so one of the things that we do is we look at uh, wait times for healthcare every year. Um, last year, we, uh, we found that the average wait between specialists to treatment was about 10.8 weeks, which is about half the wait, um, and another 10.1 weeks just to see a specialist in the first place. And when we're just looking at that second segment, um, which is specialist to treatment, um, if, we, if we look at the economic costs of those weights in terms of productivity, that's $2 billion um, in 2019. So that's before all of the effects that we're seeing right now. And what are you measuring as far as the costs? Are you looking at lost wages? Are you looking at quality of life? Or what factors go into that? Well, you know, it's obvious that wait times are not benign inconveniences. They can and do have very serious consequences for some patients. Um, These can be physical pain, suffering. Um, You can have uh, an illness turn into a debilitating disease. Um, What we're looking at here is really just the value of time, um, which is, you know, for people who are working, it's it's the value of lost wages, um, and it's also lost productivity for for people who aren't working because all time does have some value. Um, so when we're just looking at the work week, um, the estimate for the entire economy is about two billion. Uh, for BC, it's about three hundred million. Um, but once we start to even just evaluate times outside the work week, if we look at evenings and weekends, because they do have value as well, um, that estimate can go all the way up to about six billion. So. You know, incredibly long um, wait terms, uh, serious cost to the economy on a routine basis. And unfortunately, um, the current pandemic will only exacerbate these costs. And how did you come up with the numbers as far as did you question doctors and patients or how did you uh, get the data? Well, the Fraser Institute's actually been tracking wait times for almost 30 years now. Um, in, in early 1991, we started a survey um, that goes across all of Canada that asks um, uh, doctors and specialists um, how long uh, wait times are for their patients. Um, we get about 2,000 uh, responses last year, um, and that's how we get our general wait time data. Uh, we couple that with um, with wage data that we get um, from, Statistics, from Statistics Canada, 
And in addition, we also have Statistics Canada data that tells us um, approximately what percentage of patients are actually affected by these long wait times. So putting all those numbers together, we get a rough estimate of the economic consequences of these wait times. And looking at the numbers that you released as well, so this is the average value of the time lost during the work week uh, for 2019. How does BC rate? It seems like it's not as high as, say, Alberta, New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia, some of the other uh, Atlantic provinces. Where does BC fall in there? Well, in terms of per capita cost, BC does a little bit letter, better than most of the other provinces. Um, the average um, per patient cost is estimated to be about $1,700. Um, but again, this is only for the segment between specialist treatment, so not including the way to actually um, see a specialist in the first place. Uh, but I think what's also interesting for, for a lot of listeners will be what the overall costs are in BC, and that adds up to about uh, $300 million dollars. Um, uh, in BC in 2019. So, you know, while we have to deal with the impact and the consequences of the current crisis, I think it's important for us to understand that the routine long waits that we have um, in British Columbia and in Canada more generally is not something that we have to deal with. There are other ways of having universal health care without these long wait terms, and we should look at what those options are. Well, and that came up this morning a little bit, and again, I know that this wasn't timed to be released on the same day, but the Premier was asked about that this morning because in the plan he talked about in dealing with the backlog caused by the pandemic, uh, he was asked why not run the op- operating rooms 24 hours. Uh, he addressed the fact that they're going to have to hire 400 nurses as well as other surgeons and other support staff. Uh, they're going to use private clinics. He said pr- clinics that uh, will fall under the the guidelines of the Canada Health Act. Uh, are those things that you would suggest or you would say might should be perhaps part of the permanent health care system? Well, you know, obviously the, the Premier knows best about um, uh, what will work right now. But I, I think it's very, very clear once we look at Canada's system versus um, other countries around the world that have universal health care but have much shorter wait times with approximately the same uh, cost, they do three things differently. Um, the first is that they expect patients to share in the cost of treatment, uh, which may be difficult right now given our current circumstances. Um, they also fund their hospitals differently. They fund their hospitals based on activity, which actually incentivizes hospitals to treat patients because they get paid every time a patient comes in, which contrasts with Canada's current global appro- uh, global budgeting approach. And the third is they look at the private sector very, very differently. In Canada, we look at it sort of as antithetical to the concept of universal health care, whereas all these other countries embrace it as an ally, an ally that will be there now that, um, that surgeries are going to take place again. The private sector is able to uh, dramatically increase capacity without new infrastructure. This is something that provinces like Saskatchewan actually already saw and dramatically reduced their wait times by in uh, between 2010 and 2015. They also can act as a pressure valve, um, allowing patients to um, exit the system if they can pay for it, while the public system then has less strain uh, to actually deal with the patients who are anyway within it. And the third is that they won't be competing with government dollars um, with other social systems. So there are a lot of potential advantages if we just think about um, the patient rather than the fact of whether it's public or private. All right. We will leave it there, Bacchus. Uh, We're out of time. But thank you so much for joining. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much and hope all your viewers, uh, listeners are safe.
Well, I don't know about you, but I've noticed things in a much different way given the pandemic that we've been experiencing and given the news conference yesterday about reopening in BC. Yesterday, we heard all about that and about the plans, the different phases. And I think a lot of people were very pleased to hear that restaurants and bars would be included in phase two. This morning, I walked by a small restaurant and saw food being delivered and something that you probably wouldn't even notice before. But I thought, what a sign of hope. Food's being delivered. It was a case of avocados and some other boxes. But then I thought, that's a tiny restaurant. How are they going to open up? How is it going to work for them? A lot of questions still about this. And a new survey is shedding a little bit of light on how restaurant owners are feeling. So let's bring in Mark Von Schelwitz, the vice president in Western Canada of Restaurants Canada. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to be here, Jill. Uh, you've surveyed, or Restaurants Canada has surveyed uh, some restaurants about this. So what do you think the, the temperature is like, if you were to take the temperature of restaurant owners about the reopen? Well, first of all, I think we want to thank the B.C. government for including on-premise dining in phase two of their restart plan. And parcel reopening cannot come soon enough for many on-premise restaurants who've been struggling to pay operating costs with little or no income for the ca- uh, past couple of months. So... Uh, You know, we're an innovative industry, as you point out, and the pandemic has certainly tested that innovation as restaurants have been reinventing themselves to survive the restrictions placed on them due to COVID-19. And of course, they're going to have to reinvent themselves yet again as they prepare to reopen uh, with physical distancing, cleaning and sanitation, and these health and personal hygiene protocols. But what we're hearing from 70% of our members, 7 out of 10 of them, are telling us that they're really quite concerned about uh, you know, the rising levels of debt and and uh, uh, that they won't be having enough liquidity to actually pay their rent, pay their vendors and expenses over the next three months. And uh, when you have one out of five operators that can't come up in an agreement with their landlord for some sort of an extended uh, rent uh, program, uh, it really calls, uh, you know, into question uh, the Canadian Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program. There's certainly some gaps there that have to be addressed uh, and, you know, they, they basically said that plus with the reopening. And it's not like our industry is different from a lot of other industries. And you've got perishable inventory. So there's a lot more startup costs involved to getting the restaurant up and operating again. And even more so now with, with these new restrictions. And many of them are saying, we just don't have that operating capital. So they're asking, you know, governments to... Uh, put in place some sort of a working capital grant uh, such that was in place in Saskatchewan uh, to help them with the restart and also assistance with uh, with the labor costs. Uh, many of them are telling us that uh, the Canadian wage subsidy program, that 12-week period between March and June, just isn't enough to tide them over. They didn't have a lot of uh, employees during that period, but as they're now bringing employees back, uh, they could certainly use uh, some, some help from that program over the summer months uh, uh, recognizing that they're going to need some assistance in order to survive because many of them uh, are going to you know, find it difficult with the, with the restrictions in place uh, to get anywhere close to what their, their pre-COVID-19 sales levels are. You have to remember most on-premise restaurants probably do close to 50% of their sales on those busy Friday and Saturday nights. Well, they won't be able to have that anymore with the restrictions in place. So uh, what they're saying is, it is uh, you know, uh, they're asking the provincial government to come to the table with a package of solutions to help these small and medium-sized restaurants stay afloat as they ramp up their operations uh, for this new normal situation that they're into. And it's in the province's best interest as well to ensure that the, uh, these small restaurateurs survive so that uh, the 121,000-plus 
employees that are in our industry that are temporarily laid off to have jobs to come back to. Right. So the the emergency measures that are already in place, and you mentioned the rent assistance program, uh, I'm guessing some might have applied for the, for the wage subsidy as well. So you're saying the, the emergency programs that were brought in, those aren't enough for restaurants to get back on their feet? Certainly not uh, the way that the, the program is designed and the rent piece, for example. It's completely up to the landlord to decide whether or not they want to participate or not, and, and some of them aren't. And uh, I know personally cases where the landlord has given their 10 days notice, pay rent in full or hand in the keys. Well, that's certainly not going to help get the economy going. So we're certainly asking that program to be redesigned or fixed. And, and in fairness to the to the governments, they, they have been very good once they announce something at making some adjustments. And we're certainly hoping that uh, they can make that some adjustments to that program so it's more effective for our members uh, to be able to pay rent. And, and we're also asking the provincial government to put a, a, a non-eviction clause in so that uh, they've got some temporary protection while they work out some long-term solutions on rent. Uh, so we don't have the situation where businesses are closing uh, uh, simply because they can't afford their rent and and uh, the landlord's asking them to hand back the keys. Uh, that that doesn't work for anybody and we're certainly looking forward to seeing a win-win solution and uh, we're hoping that uh, the provincial government looking specifically at our industry, which has been really hard hit on that, we'll come to the table with some solutions to help with those working capital, rent and, and wage issues that uh, that are so clearly identified in not only our survey, but in our BC town halls that we've done over the last couple of weeks. Uh, what about some of the other ideas that have been floated around uh, in Vancouver, I think in Victoria, some other places about this opening up the sidewalks, or the back alleys, even some streets, if they were to shut down to traffic and be uh, made into open air places so restaurants could have more capacity. Is that enough or is that something you think that's important? Definitely it's something important and certainly that was in our our guidance letter to to the provincial government along with our best practices guide uh, to open up and you know I know the city of Vancouver has done a parklet type pilot before and where it's uh, uh, available certainly that would be one thing and also let's get rid of a lot of the red tape for getting patio licenses or expanding your patios recognizing as dr henry says that outdoor seating is safer than indoor seating so we certainly want to maximize that outdoor seating capacity so we think that's a great idea and i know the city of vancouver is looking at this and and hopefully other municipalities uh, will look at ways that we can increase that capacity uh, the patio capacity and also get rid of a lot of the red tape that goes into applying for these patio licenses or ex- or extending them. And do you think it's something that we might see permanently in that it seems like it would be strange to suddenly have all these great patios and open spaces and then have it taken away? Well, certainly, you know, that all depends. But, you know, we're not going to be in any sense of normalcy for another year from now. So, uh, you know, I think these got to be in place for now. And then we'll see what the environment's like at that time and what works and what doesn't. But but certainly as a way to help restaurateurs uh, uh, increase their capacity and do it in a safe way, uh, patios are certainly part of that solution. And do you know what it's going to look like then when we talk about the new practices? And you mentioned this a bit as far as the cleaning, the sanitizing. I mean, are we going to be looking at restaurants where I'm sitting at a table and and there's is it something as simple as there's an empty table between me and the next table with people in it? Or are we going to have plexiglass up and say stations where you pay and stations where you pick stuff up? Yeah, a combination of both. Obviously, there's we have to respect those physical distancing rules either through 
uh, physical barriers like plexiglass, as you mentioned, between booths or uh, or keeping that uh, that two meter distance between the tables. And, and that's why we have restaurateurs right now looking at their floor plans, coming up with new floor plans, not only for those things, but what are the new training protocols so that you can still provide the guests the service with as little uh, human contact as possible. So, you know, dropping off, uh, maybe do one pour and then leaving the bottle on the table and have them reservice. Uh, certainly looking at protocols to ensure that we don't have uh, that, that guest congregation around washroom areas and around entrances and using reservation and other things to make sure that we're staggering when people are coming in so, so we don't have that. So, as I mentioned before, we're a pretty innovative industry and I think that uh, uh, I like the flexibility that the province has offered there so that you can provide your particular plan and how you're going to do this safely. That works for your establishment as opposed to some really hard and fast prescriptive rules. So uh, we certainly appreciate uh, that that part of it. Uh, but once again, we still have a lot of members that just are not sure that they're going to be able to reopen uh, because of the lack of the working capital and because of the insurmountable debt that seems to be accumulating as we've been going through this the last few months and recognizing that we're not going to be anywhere near normal for, for uh, several months and likely more like a year uh, where we have to work with these these uh, restricted capacity uh, restrictions. And given that, and, and not knowing if there might be more government help or there might be changes in the next couple of weeks, are you able to even guess on what percentage of restaurants do you think will reopen in mid-May? Yeah, a very good question. Certainly our last survey that we did indicated that one out of two independent restaurants, unless current conditions change, uh, we're not going to be able to survive. And as you know, we already have roughly 10% of restaurants that have already permanently closed and handed their keys back in. And we want to just make sure as many of those people are, as possible are there. We're also saying, though, don't rush. If you don't have your plan ready uh, by mid-May, if you're waiting an extra week or two, I'd rather do it right than rush it and not do it correctly because, um, you know, health and safety has always been uh, mission critical for our industry, and that's as true now as it was before COVID-19. And we only want to see restaurants open that can ensure that they're respecting these physical distancing and extra cleaning and sanitization and personal hygiene protocols. All right, we'll leave it there. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure, Joe. Well, coming up this half hour, we are going to talk a little bit more about transit. Even though we now have this plan, this blueprint for reopening the province moving forward, there are still some big reductions coming for the transit system in Metro Vancouver. The union wants that to change. The company saying at this point they are still losing millions of dollars. So we'll talk about that a bit later on this half hour. First, though, a group of Canadians has created a new petition, and it is calling for better protection for Canadians that currently live in long-term care facilities. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Kitra Kahana. She is a Montreal woman. Her father is in long-term care. Kitra, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. What are your main concerns or what would you like to see change when it comes to long-term care facilities? I mean, I think what we're really looking for as family advocates is to see a strong coordinated strategy coming from the federal government and each of the provinces working with the federal government. It's We want to see one standard for all long-term care facilities across the country so that no one is dying unnecessarily as is currently happening. 
We know that a big percentage of the deaths from COVID-19 are in long-term care facilities. That's where we've seen many outbreaks uh, as well. Uh, So what do you think could be changed then moving forward? Because outbreaks at care facilities aren't new. We see flu outbreaks uh, seasonally uh, year after year. That's not new. What do you think needs to change to better protect people? Um, I think there's there's so many things that need to to go into effect immediately, um, and most importantly, I think is protecting the workers because protecting the workers is protecting our loved ones. You can't have a situation where workers are going in and they don't have the proper uh, protective equipment. Um, we're seeing that across the board that workers at long-term care facilities are getting second rate or no or like uh, second standard equipment to hospital frontline workers and that should not be the case um these facilities are overwhelming the hospital system so protecting them should be everyone's concern not just loved ones everyone should be concerned about the long-term care facilities uh, one of the issues that that came up in BC and I think in other provinces as well was the idea that workers tend to work or in many cases do work at different facilities and that's how they might uh, put together uh, one full-time job. It's by working at facilities throughout uh, the region that w- they work in different facilities. Uh, what would you say to that? I mean, that's one of the things that changed because of the pandemic. Would you like to see that permanent, that workers only work in one facility? Yeah, I mean, all of all of these issues that are coming to light now have were pre-existing. Um, long-term care has been neglected for far too long, and you know, there these are facilities who are that are understaffed. The workers are underpaid for the the doing the work that no one else wants to do in our society, and and they they really should be paid a dignified wage so that they don't have to take multiple jobs in order to do this type of work. Um, I think this is very much uh, an issue of protecting workers across the board and caregivers. And I imagine it comes down to uh, the issue of money as well, as there are different types of long-term care. There, are, there is government subsidized. There is more expensive private long-term care. Uh, there are different different types depending on what uh, somebody is looking for. Right, but there shouldn't there shouldn't be different standards for the private domain or the public domain. The way that we need to protect these facilities is the same across all the boards. There, there are best practices that we have seen enacted in other countries, and all emergency funding should go towards protecting our loved ones, protecting our friends, protecting our neighbors in long-term care. Uh, you've started another initiative as well, uh, Artists for Long-Term Care. Uh, just before I let you go, what uh, is that initiative about? Yeah, we're calling upon artists from of all types, of all varieties, photographers, illustrators, filmmakers, to create artworks that show the, the nuanced and beautiful lives of individuals who live in long-term care facilities and the workers who work in long-term care facilities. And we're asking people to share that artwork 
on Instagram and on social media using the hashtag artists for long-term care. We have an Instagram account called artists for long-term care, and we'd love for people to follow and join in this movement of fighting, fighting for our elders, fighting for disabled folks and fighting for the heroic workers who are, who are on the front lines and are starting to die. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Kitra, thanks for joining us. And people can see the petition at uh, change.org. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.